Today's TribCast is presented by Texas A&M University. It takes dedication and commitment to develop lifelong learners that become our leaders of tomorrow. See what makes Texas A&M University fearless on every front at fearlessfront.com. And Texas Central, North Texas to Houston in 90 minutes. The bullet train is good for Texas and will accelerate the state's economy. More at texascentral.com. Texas Talking what was that that you said? Texas talking, ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are and Texas guys Hi, this is Pete Flores, Republican candidate for Texas Senate and first place finisher in the SD19 special election. Though we were outspent 10 to 1, our victory shows the power of the grassroots. We took a few hours off last night, but are already working on winning the runoff. I always enjoy the Texas Tribune's coverage, and now here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, August 1st with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by CEO Evan Smith. It occurs to me now, only after all these years with you in this office, that the way to get under your skin is to go on and on about the Torchy's Taco of the Month. Torchy's tacos are gross. Stop. Moving on. Criminal justice reporter Jolie McCulloch. Hello. Torchy's or Taco Deli, Jolie? <laughs> Snap poll. Um, Papalote. Oh, jeez. Oh She's God. so fancy. That's like not, I'm not a fan of them, actually. Is there a Papalote north of Kyle? Well, it doesn't... What? No. I mean, look There's how one on South Lamar, which is no, right where I live. Which is basically no, Kyle. No, no. <laughs> Political no. reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Torchy's or Taco Deli? Uh, Taco Deli. Thank you. He'd like he'd like to. Torchies or Taco Deli. Torchies. Michael, Torchies or Taco Deli. Veracruz. Veracruz. Fancy. We'll also be taking your questions and opinions on Taco Deli or Torchies via Facebook and Twitter. Do you ever see Diner? There's a scene in Diner where they're talking about whose music they listen to when they make out with a girl. Do you know this scene in Diner? And it's um, it's uh, it's uh, it's press it's Mathis or. Presley, and then somebody, Mickey Rourke says Sinatra. That's kind of what he just, he just Sinatra does, basically. This is going really well so far. <laughs> All right, so Patrick, Dine's, last Dine's night. a great movie. All right. Last night we had a very special, special election. This one to fill the seat of former state Senator Carlos Uresti, a Democrat who stepped down after being found guilty of 11 felonies, uh, including securities fraud and money laundering. Uh, there were, uh, there was a field of eight last night. Tell us what we need to know. Yeah, so it's it's headed to a runoff, which was expected. But what was what was less expected was what the runoff pairing was going to be, and who actually ended up finishing in first. So we have a runoff now between a Republican Pete Flores and a Democrat Pete Gallego. So two all, Pete's. all my Pete's, yeah. all the Pete's. <laughs> the quick Pete back, squared. Quick Pete background repeat. on them is that <laughs> Pete, right. Pete Flores, the Republican, ran for the seat against Carlos Uresti in, in 2016 and, and lost. Pete Gallego is the uh, former congressman, longtime state house member from West Texas. And so these two made it into the runoff. What was a little surprising was um, that the Republican Pete Flores finished first and by a pretty uh, healthy margin. Last time I checked, it was at least uh, three or four points. And um, he benefited from this late surge of support um, from some of you know the top elected officials in the state, both U.S. senators, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, Governor Greg Abbott. And you could see that in how much ground he made up in between his early voting uh, numbers What'd and his election day numbers. What did you think about the Abbott endorsement? It's kind of what tepid. What did I think about it? It was sort of tepid, wasn't it? 
It was I mean, like a clutch a cargo Republic. ad. It was like a generic endorsement ad, and they just well, said— it's still an endorsement from the governor. They just used the Pete Flores sure. name in the middle sure. of— you know. yeah. Well, Abbott was the last to endorse of those big names, so read into that as much as you want Look, they saw an opportunity, Patrick, would you agree, because— to call San Antonio special elections dumpster fires is t- to be offensive to actual f- dumpsters, dumpsters on fire. I mean, it's... It well, how many people actually voted? A, a song? Not a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> very, very, very low turnout. I and forgot the exact rate. I mean, did um, the Democrats just div- were there so many Democrats in the, the race the, that they the just Bear divided County up? The Democratic Party is like a clown car. Well, I, I guess I'm just trying to determine like how much of this was a really good showing for a Republican versus like all the Democrats sure, basically so, yeah, went I mean, their the, separate the, ways. In addition to Gallego, you had State Representative Roland Gutierrez in the race. He ended up finishing third. Who, who, who um, people thought actually get based just based on. Who was viewed as, as as something as a leading candidate on the going mo, into right? This. And he had like everybody endorsing him. He right. He campaigned in this district or traveled this district long before Carlos Suresti resigned. He had basically anticipated that we'd get to a special election like this, and so he put in a lot of advance work, months in advance uh, of uh, he's been running. He's been running for this thing. Yeah, before. he's kind of running a shadow campaign for a right, while, for, and for so when long, the seat opened up, he was able right. to roll out all these endorsements and everything. Um, but in Picayago, you have someone who is just incredibly well known in this district, the congressional district that he represented and that he's run in multiple times overlaps this Senate district uh, overwhelmingly. Um, millions of dollars has been has has been spent by outside groups to tell the district positive and negative things about Gallego over the years. And so he's just a very well-known figure. And it was always, I think, going to be, um, you know, a, a challenge for Gutierrez uh, to overcome that. And then you, you have, in addition to that, this Republican candidate who, uh, you know, at the end at least, became the consensus candidate of the GOP. And so, um, you know, I think that, you know, when you consider all all of those factors, last night's results make some sense. It's a pretty heavy Democratic district. And the, uh, yet yet again, Democrats having a problem in, the well, San in Antonio, special elections well, in, San in San Antonio, Antonio in districts right. that are very Democratic. So what's at play there? I mean, why does this keep happening that we see Republicans sort of outperforming Democrats in this district? I don't know if the Republican necessarily outperformed uh, last night. Um, in fact, some people Exceeding would probably argue that he, he didn't. Maybe. I mean, you had a splintered, you had an obviously splintered Dem- Democratic vote. Just, just we should say that of there were eight candidates, four Democrats, including Pete Gallego and Roland Gutierrez, who were Tomas both running. Tomas Uresti. Exactly. Not uh, a good name, last sure. name to be running with had, in this district. four Democrats. It was more like no Moss Uresti, oh, right. honestly. Oh, good one, Evan. Yeah, Did I, you come I, up with that I yourself? I saw that one just sitting right here, actually. Oh, good. Oh, wow. That's, a, that's impressive. Thanks. We have four Democrats, two who are running very viable, serious campaigns, well-known figures in at least parts of the district. You had three Republicans, only one who was really in play for it. And like I said, he benefited from all that heavyweight support at the end. And then you had one libertarian. What's the aggregate Democratic vote if you add up all the Democrats who ran? Yeah, it was something like 60 percent or something like that. You assume that the Democrats walk into this runoff figuring that everybody who voted Democratic is going to support Gallego? Because I do not. I mean, I think the bigger question is whether they show up for the runoff. That's always, I mean, this is this is going to be such a low turnout runoff. Matt McCoviak and the statewide Republicans in that order smell blood. Matt mm. McCoviak was right. running to Flores. Wasn't he running to Flores? Right, that's yeah. correct. They, yeah, smell, the, they smell blood. They think in a lower turnout runoff that they're going to kill on this. I mean, I don't know if they'll kill, but I do think low turnout runoffs are... are sure. The, the one parallel that can be drawn, and it's certainly imperfect, is that in 2016, when Pete Flores ran against... Carlos Suresti, he got 40% of the vote. Carlos Suresti got 56% of the vote. The split between combined Democrat 
Democrats and Republicans last night was actually wider um, in terms of in favor of, of Democrats. Yeah, but you have to assume but, that if there's a runoff that they're going to come out again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my point is that it's it's an imperfect parallel. No, election day, November 2016, is was much different turnout than whenever special election runoff day 2018 is going to be. I have a question. I thought that the governor was being slightly mischievous within the law in calling the special election when he did as quickly as he did with so little time to file and so little time to campaign figuring that by doing so, there wasn't a lot of time for this race to be a real race and that low turnout races would be better for his side in an instance like this. And in the end, the guy the governor wanted to, to, to finish and first finished in first. Is there any kind of political gaming going on here with the way that special election politics play out, do you think? I mean, it, Abbott, as far as I know, I mean, he. This was a special election that he called well within the, the statute. Yeah, he called the, it as an emergency the statute timeline. Hardly an emergency. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a situation like with the twenty seventh congressional district where Abbott, you know, basically, uh, you know, sought the green light from the attorney general and overrode the the process. Um, no, I think he was within right. the law. But the yeah. point is, he oh, made absolutely. this out it's to a, be something like an emergency. And I just question where was the pressing need to have this thing happen in two seconds. Sure. It's absolutely a political calculation. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I think every that's every governor makes a political calculation in, in calling uh, special elections when they have the means to do so. Well, speaking of the governor's political calculations, um, after the May 18th school shooting in Santa Fe, Texas, Governor Abbott released a school safety plan, Jolie, which included the potential for something called a red flag law, which is what? So red flag laws have become more common after the Parkland shooting in Florida. Um, more and more states have kind of jumped on board. They're basically laws that allow courts to um, either remove, remove guns either by seizure or surrender from people who are deemed dangerous by a judge. Um, they vary from state to state as to who can request such an order, uh, if it's a family member or if it's only law enforcement um, or like a, only a mental health professional. But they're basically ways to people who have shown threatening behavior but haven't actually potentially committed a crime yet can have their firearms uh, taken away from them. So Abbott sort of brings this up as something that is, has been discussed in these roundtables, um, but he's, you know, has not exactly gotten traction on this idea, particularly. He, he ra did he not? He raised it first. The, the, the red flag law thing was part of his enumerated list of potential solutions, was it not, initially? Well, Pri it was prior to his... Um, Roundtables? His roundtables? He didn't really say much before his roundtable. The first time I remember him mentioning it was after it, the second day of his roundtable. I thought they when came out of that it, conversation. It came out of the roundtable. And round he has table. said that since, basically, look, this wasn't my, you know, um, my personal, I wasn't vouching for this personally. I was just saying. this up. Well, Good. yeah, so he, it. it came out, it mainly came out of the roundtable, and at the roundtable discussion, he was kind of like, well, this is something that got brought up, and it was a little unclear how he felt. And then he came out with his safety plan, his school and gun safety plan, and it did have a page about this, these red flag measures, um, and he kind of went into detail about what they could do, and he actually ended the section by saying protective orders like this, which are the orders that can have guns removed, could have prevented the shootings in Sutherland Springs and in Parkland, Florida. Um, not necessarily, he didn't say it would have pre prevented Santa Fe, but that is a pretty strong statement. Um, for and a governor. For yeah. the governor, yeah. And so, you know, Democrats immediately tweeted that he was endorsing a, a bill from last session that would have been similar to a red flag law. Um, 
and then he kind of was quiet about it for a while. And Empower Texans came out, a conservative group, and kind of slammed this. Um, and then the GOP party, the Texas platform, put a instance in there that said, you know, we would not approve any type of red flag law. Um, and then, so after that, while the House was holding its first hearing, because his plan requested that the legislature hold hearings on this, as the House was holding its hearing, Abbott tweeted that he didn't necessarily advocate for any of these laws. It was only something that he said the legislature could consider. Yeah, well, in fact, the Brandon, Brandon Formby story for us on May the 30th about the plan that emerged from the roundtables says the plan mentions a potential red flag law that would allow judges to temporarily take guns away from people deemed to be dangerous if there's legal due process. Abbott didn't call for the legislat- for legislators to pass such a law. He instead wanted to encourage lawmakers to consider the merits right. of adopting so it. So he, he, yeah, it, it kind of a dealer's choice. His plan wasn't, right, right. definitely wasn't pass a law like this, but it, it was like, it was in his plan to have lawmakers consider it. It was in, like, it wasn't him saying this is charges. a dumb idea. Well, or the, second this is a the second say, amendment guys went batshit right. over this. They yeah. did well, not like this along, then, along, with, along with a couple of right, other so things. So how did, when did Dan Patrick get involved? So Dan Patrick got involved right after the Senate held its hearing on this. Um, he issued an interim charge at, seemingly at the request of the governor, uh, Joe Strauss and Dan Patrick made their committees hear this issue. Um, and then right after the Senate finished their hearing on it, um, I don't know, like last week or the week, I think it was last week, yeah, um, Dan Patrick issued a statement that said he does not support and has never supported any such And there's no way to get through the Senate or something and he, like yeah, that. Yeah, as much as, and many of his senators felt the same Doesn't way. Doesn't this happen kind of as a general rule? Shooting happens. We get the thoughts and prayers tweets. Then we get a discussion of potential policy solutions. We see polling that shows that the public believes that there should be some tweaks to the laws currently in place to restrict access by people who might do bad things to guns. It might require background checks or bans on high-capacity magazines or ban on assault weapons or red flag laws or whatever else. Um, and then time passes, and then nothing changes. And, in fact, the the momentum for any kind of serious discussion of this is trumped by the political I mean, it depends because statements Florida, that of the kind that we just heard in Florida after Parkland, they passed a red flag law. They passed that huge bill that has was so encompassing of so many different policies and included a red flag law like weeks after the shooting. And it's in effect now. And they're seizing guns. I mean, um, I actually so, thought it I mean, seemed it I thought it was kind of politically risky, actually, for Abbott. To, I mean, to me, it seemed like a stretch that he was even talking about a red flag law. I was surprised. At the well, a red flag law is not like a ban on assault weapons. It's still, no, but it's, it's still pretty modest. It's also but, encouraging, how, encouraging something. Well, I encourage you to make the Trimcast three hours today. But people Doesn't at mean the you're hearing do it. were... I mean, but he, his language in it was strong. It wasn't just like, maybe consider this if you want. It was like, I encourage you to consider this. And he did say that it could have prevented... Right. Sutherland Springs and is it politically yeah. risky for him to well, even broach those? Sure. Well, I mean, there clearly was a political backlash within yeah. at least parts of his own party. What I think is interesting is the the, the leadership politics here. Uh, Dan Patrick's statement on this uh, alluded to, uh, you know, try he, when Dan Patrick came out with this statement, he tried to position himself as saying something, you know, that was already known that Abbott, you know, isn't advocating for this, which is true. I mean, his statement alluded to a tweet from Abbott several weeks ago where Abbott told a critic on Twitter, uh, I just want the legislature to consider this. I'm not, 
I'm not advocating for it. But Dan, make no mistake, Dan Patrick's statement was the boldest thing we've heard from a statewide elected official uh, on this topic, either for or against it, uh, much bolder than anything Abbott has said in terms of offering an actual opinion. So I think Dan Patrick, at least in tone, got pretty got out in front of the governor on this. I mean, um, what, what, what's the political risk in encouraging something to come back to this? Nothing. It means he doesn't oppose the idea. And I think if you don't oppose red flag laws, you're not on the same side so as the far right. Is, so well, by not opposing it, you're, it's, it's risky just to encourage people to talk about stuff. Now, we, now we've moved the threshold for riskiness from doing something unpopular to considering doing something unpopular. Uh, I think, yes. I mean, I think that threshold already exists. Let me go back to what I said last time I was on Trumpcast. Nothing matters. Nothing matters. Nothing matters. I mean, if, 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 if seriously, if dead kids in a high school can't remove the political risk in encouraging people to talk about something, seriously? All right. I, 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 you know, and, and I wonder, honestly, if, um, if, if you're alluding to the idea that Dan Patrick and Greg Abbott are somehow at odds politically on this? Do you think that Patrick think was stepping out ahead of Abbott? Odds, but I think that, like I said, I mean, that statement that Dan Patrick put out while it was <laughs> had a line that was deferential to the governor, uh, every other part of it was more bold and opinionated than anything that we had heard from the governor. You think it was chin music thrown at In at some Abbott. ways, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Than, than anything that we had heard from the governor up until this point. Well, we're going to jump to our next topic, but before we do, I'd like to thank another TribCast sponsor, Accenture. People love the personalization they get from Netflix or Uber. How can AI change their government experience? More at Accenture.com. Uh, Evan and Patrick, fill us in. There are a couple of new uh, polls that landed today that give us some more insights into the tech, into the U.S. Senate race in Texas, as well as some of the statewides. Uh, the Texas Lyceum poll this morning and then the Quinnipiac poll that came out just early this afternoon. What do we know? Go ahead, big boy. No, you can take it away. Uh, the lesson. I, I honestly haven't dug into all of them. So, what you but when doing? was the last time you were called big boy? I, I feel like I've heard Evan call him big boy multiple yeah. times, is, and I hate it every time. Tbh, he's big, bigger than you. Well, that doesn't take very much. That's, we're talking about right. thresholds easy to get over. That's, that's <laughs> right. one. Uh, the Lyceum poll this morning out has um, Abbott up by 16 over Lupe Valdez, Dan Patrick and Ken Paxton each up 10 over their respective Democratic opponents, but Ted Cruz only up two on Beto O'Rourke. So if you turn that upside down, what it means is that Beto O'Rourke is running between 8 and 14 points better, according to the Lyceum poll, of the Democrats at the top of the ballot. The Quinnipiac poll, which literally, as we sit here, is only out for like 30 minutes, um, in fact, was not even supposed to be out yet, has Abbott up 13 on Valdez, although it was 19 at the end of May, the last time Quinnipiac polled this race, and has uh, Cruz up 6 on O'Rourke, but it was 11 the last time they polled this race at the end of May. So you would take from that, if you believe that Quinnipiac poll, that the momentum is moving a little bit in the direction of Democrats, that O'Rourke is running better than Valdez, that it's a race that is not yet within the margin of error, but is moving to a place where it can be viewed as a competitive race. And I suspect that even the Cruz people would tell you that they view this race as closer than the typical Senate race and probably closer than the other statewide races. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, I know Republicans have a lot of complaints about the, the methodology and the Yeah, where's sampling. Chris Perkins? He must be Chris on vacation. Wilson. Chris <laughs> Wilson. Whatever. Yeah, what are the Chris's? What are the, what are the primary complaints about the methodology of either of these? That they suck unless it's an internal poll in a cruise I campaign. I mean, don't they, these guys complain about every single poll that exists. Except the ones that they put out. 
Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They obviously have an interest in, in, in the Ever uh, thus, in, in the politics, not, not just them. I mean, everybody does. As accurate. So, uh, but I, I guess the point I was going to make, though, is that, you know, the point stands that it's it, even if you adjust the sample the way these guys want to or adjust the methodology and shift all the results, you know, five or ten points in a direction of um, the the incumbents, um, you know, I mean, the point stands that, you know, Cruz's race is going to be the closest statewide race and the most competitive. And it, you know, makes perfect sense. O'Rourke is running very well funded, very, uh, you know, spirited, inspired campaign, traveling very aggressively. So, I mean, I think that point still stands. I think the, the big numbers. issue is going to be not whether this race is going to be closer than the typical Senate race or closer than other races on the ballot. I think stipulated that that's probably the case. The question is, is the perception of the race and the reality of the race, do they converge at a point where it is close enough that national Democratic eyeballs, money, attention, get in. Because as of right now, if you look at the consistent, you know, Politico's list or this one's list or that one's list of the competitive Senate races in the cycle, the O'Rourke Cruz race is not on that list. It is still not on that list. They're worried about saving Claire McCaskill, Heidi Heitkamp, Joe, uh, Joe Manchin, a little bit less lately, Joe Donnelly in Indiana. Um, they think they can get Dean Heller. They think that Kristen Cinema can beat whoever the Republicans put up in Arizona. They're not yet at a point of talking about this race in that top tier of competitive races. So d the question is, do polls like this ultimately mean that the perception of the reality makes it enough of a race that the, that the hordes descend on Texas? Nancy asks is, on yeah, social media, you know, the Cruz— The last thing Beto oh, probably yeah. wants. Right. Yeah. Cruz was a fundraising juggernaut in 2016. Is he not doing as well now, uh, you know, and why not if he has this national donor base? You know, we've, we've talked about this before, and I think it's not so much that Cruz's fundraising is is lagging in the conventional sense. It's just that O'Rourke's operation and his numbers are just extraordinary, um, and it's just outpacing Cruz uh, on, you know, in a, in a somewhat unprecedented way for a Democratic Senate candidate in Texas. And so, um, you know, I forgot what the exact rankings were, but, you know, the last quarter, Cruz was among the top Republican Senate incumbents in terms of fundraising across the country, if not the top Republican Senate incumbent for fundraising. And so uh, I don't think that it's, you know, he's not taking he's not it underperforming, seriously financially. Right? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. It's just that O'Rourke is, is overperforming. overperforming. Yeah. You know, this is the other part that I think is, is an existential intangible. And we've talked about this as well before on the Tribcast. There is something going on in the sense that if you drive around parts of the state where you typically don't see campaign yard signs, and you certainly don't see campaign yard signs from Democratic campaigns, there are a lot of Beto signs out around the state. I hear from people all over the state. I'm, you know, my neighborhood is a Republican neighborhood. It's not a particularly politically active neighborhood. And I'm seeing Beto signs. I'm seeing Beto signs. Signs don't vote. Money doesn't vote. People vote. So we'll wait and pass judgment on whether this is actually something until the election uh, happens. But th there is something seemingly-ish-esque going on. There has been something seemingly-ish-esque going on before, though, and voters don't turn out. I, I think other—I I actually would say I agree with you, except this is, this is not a normal cycle. cycle yeah. And this is not a normal race. Mm -hmm. And so I just I like I want to just sort of I don't I'm not necessarily saying I think this race is now suddenly super competitive. I just think it's I'm, something's up. All right. Well, Evan, today is a very big day. The day we it announced is. the lineup for the Texas this Tribune Festival presented by Walmart. I thought it was the Torchies uh, Taco of the Month thing. Uh, that right? too. Um, so tell me. All right. Before you tell us about the exciting What's lineup. With the sponsor message. Yeah. Well, you know, I get paid to work here. Pretty good. Um, tell us about the logistics of the festival this year and how it's different than years past. Well, for one thing, we're no longer on the University of Texas at Austin campus. Uh, we're uh, downtown uh, in the shadow of the Capitol. 
uh, in downtown venues and on downtown streets, including in most especially Congress Avenue, which on the Saturday of our two-day festival will be closed from the T at 11th Street uh, so that 11th will not be obstructed east-west, but from the just south of 11th Street down to 8th. So the upper portion of Congress Avenue will be closed that day as part of our festival. As I said, it's a two-day festival this year. That's also a big change. Typically, it was an evening opening night. It was a Sunday morning close, but the full program was really, the bulk of it was on that one full day Saturday. And today, and, and this time, uh, you know, we've sort of accepted the feedback that we've gotten over the years that people would like to have a weekday along with a weekend day because for a lot of people this is work and they see a weekday as a proper day on which to talk about work stuff. And so we went to a Friday and a Saturday, two full days. And so by virtue of going to two full days, the program has expanded from about 60 sessions previously to more than 90 Last year, it was something like 260 speakers, 270 speakers. This year, it's more about 340 speakers. And because this midterm election cycle is the most nationalized midterm election cycle in any of our lifetimes, the president's not on the ballot. president is absolutely on the ballot. And so much of the national political environment has descended upon Texas. And so many more races that are federal races, congressional races, the Senate race, are more competitive, at least in theory, fundraising and all that. We've made the focus a little bit more national and a little bit less expressly Texas. That is not to say that we do not intend for uh, a big Texas conversations, but the fact is there are uh, just a ton of um, a ton of national conversations at this festival. And so it's an array of speakers that I think is the best that we've ever had. And we're psyched. Who are you so, most excited about? Yes, you, good question. Julie, moderating the panel <laughs> no. on criminal justice reform. <laughs> All right. So, uh, what's your top uh, list? If, really if you were plan- if you didn't have to moderate anything, I already and, did and this thread. Did you not? Are you not on Twitter this morning? Evan, I'm not spending all my time well, on Twitter. One of the things was I your panel. Tell me. I actually didn't notice that. Yes. Uh, tell me the things that if you weren't. You attend- should have a Twitter alert for yourself. <laughs> yeah, I know. On if you weren't moderating or interviewing, what what are the panels that you'd be attending? You know, I love the politics and the press stuff because I'm such a homer. Media Homer. Um, I love the panel of the White House correspondents talking about the experience of covering this White House and this administration. It's um, it's Shauna Thomas of Vice moderating a panel that is Michelle Sindor of PBS, Kimberly Atkins of the Boston Herald, Mike Bender of the Wall Street Journal, and Eli Stokels of the LA Times. I love that panel. Um, I really love um, the fact that we have a double-digit number of people who are seriously looking at running for president next time. I love that. Um, I love the fact that we have a bunch of serious conversations about what year two of the Trump administration has been like, following up on what uh, track we did last year on what year one of the Trump administration had been like. So we have a Trump and Mueller and Russia panel. We have a Trump and justice and the law panel. We have a Trump and, in, in essence, a panel that is about faith and politics and policy at this moment. We have a panel on Reagan and Trump and the state of conservatism, which I think is really pretty interesting. We have a panel on counterterrorism. Uh, in the age of, of the president. And, and look, it's, it's, I think there's something on there for everybody. And if you're a political junkie or if you're, you're, you've never used, I think you can find something <laughs> on this program that you like. Or policy. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boring. And, and that, and that <laughs> also. And policy. Yeah, I know. You don't give a crap about elections. Um, <laughs> what? Um, who are your keynotes? Who are your big opening closings? So John Kerry is the opening night, former U.S. Secretary of State, former United States Senator from Massachusetts, former presidential candidate who has a memoir out called Every Day is Extra, two weeks before the festival opens. And so we'll have a wide-ranging conversation about the world at a crossroads. Russia, North Korea, China, Iran, NATO, NAFTA, 
NAFTO, NADA, <laughs> all, all, the all the all the uh, NAS, right? Uh, right. Um, all the acronyms. Uh, it'll be great. Uh, I'm really interested in that. The closing session is Beto O'Rourke, uh, the aforementioned uh, U.S. Senate candidate, talking about his race, the long odds, and the big money, and the issues, and the incumbent, and his vision for America. We had attempted to get, now it can be told, a Cruz O'Rourke debate as the closing session of the festival that Robert Costa of Washington Week and The Washington Post and I were hoping to moderate, the four of us on stage together. The Cruz campaign, as part of its response to the debate proposal put forth by Congressman O'Rourke, declined to do that debate and, in fact, declined to send Senator Cruz to the festival to be interviewed by himself at all, which is too bad, but... Okay. Question on social media. Nancy, again, wants to know, and this dovetails here, so where's, why are Cruz and Governor Abbott not on this lineup? You'll have to ask the Abbott uh, campaign press team and the Abbott governor staff press team why Governor Abbott will not do events with us. So He's asked, We ask every time. We ask every time. And it's just a no thanks? Look, I think that the, the look, the, who is not on this program? Among those up for re-election in Texas in 2018, Governor Abbott, Attorney General Paxton, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, Ag Commissioner Miller, Chair of the Railroad Commission Christy Craddock, all were asked, all were invited, all were given opportunities to be here. They declined. Um, you'll have to ask them why. Uh, we believe that a conversation about the issues that face this state and its people is a good conversation to have, and a lack of conversation on those subjects is not good. We wish they had come. They are still welcome to change their minds. They can come on the Tribcast, right? They any any week. Well, okay. we're looking forward to the trip. The Tribcast anyway. Miller on the Tribcast together. That might be a one-on-one. Actually, he was a one-on-one with me at festival a couple of years ago. That's when he said that he actually believed climate change was real. Tr- and, real, and news then had ver- to, real news versus fake yes, news. Yes, and then he had I, to walk like it back. That. It's a heavyweight battle. <laughs> All right, well, that's all the time we have this week. If you like listening to the Tribcast, we hope you'll try our audio news brief, which shows up every morning on your Amazon Alexa smart speaker or favorite podcast player. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to Texas A&M, Texas Central, and Accenture, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Evan, Jolie, Patrick, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. What's the date today? Today's the, the August 1st. August. The August. The August 1st. The August. The August. <laughs> I was going to say the August Yes, you know how I know August. it's August 1st? Because I got the email from Torchies about the taco of the month. What, what is it? It's got beef. <laughs>